Hello and welcome to the We Need to Talk About Whiteness podcast. I'm your host, Miriam Francois, and for those joining us for the very first time, welcome. This is a space where we explore the meaning of whiteness as the term is used in conversations around race and racism and as it pertains to different areas of our lives. Why whiteness? Well, very simply because as someone racialized as white myself, I want to explore the meaning and impact of white racial identity at our current juncture. I'm lucky enough to be joined by some incredible contributors who can help us shine a light on what the term means to them and whether it's a useful addition to the anti-racism arsenal. In this episode, I have the immense pleasure of being joined by a leading historian and the New York Times bestselling author of the History of White People, Professor Nell Irvin Painter. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, Professor Painter is a New Jersey-based visual artist and a leading historian of the United States. She's currently the Edwards Professor of American History Emerita at Princeton University. She's the author of several books, including Sojourner Truth, A Life, A Symbol, and the History of White People, and a memoir, Old in Art School. Her most recent artist book, From Slavery to Freedom 2020, is currently in Newark Museum of Art, and American Whiteness Since Trump 2020 is now on view at the James Fuentes Gallery in New York, but I'm also told it's available online for those of you who'd like to catch it. Well, first off, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome, Professor. Um, thank you. Thank you. How does American Whiteness look since Trump? <laughs> Given this is the title of your uh, gallery yes, expo, yes. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, American whiteness since Trump um, looks, well, it's in 28 pages, but it only goes to March of this year. And this year has been absolutely extraordinary. Um, so American whiteness since Trump, my artist book, doesn't include coronavirus doesn't include the George Floyd Black Lives Matter uh, demonstrations all over the United States, including up here um, in the Adirondack Mountains, and um, doesn't include the recent uh, presidential election. So it's kind of um, a snapshot in time, um, that time being March, uh, mid-March uh, 2020. Since then, uh, since mid-March 2020, American whiteness has looked somewhat different. So the American whiteness since Trump, my artist book, has a very strong theme of white nationalism because Trump brought white nationalism into the quote-unquote mainstream and uh, several of his close advisors, people we would see in the newspapers, and I, we don't have TV up here, but if we had TV, we'd see them on TV and we'd stream them and all that, uh, are clearly white nationalists. The person I look, looked at most clearly for American whiteness since Trump was Richard Spencer, who was one of the leaders of the Unite the Right um, Nazi rally in Charlottesville in 2017. So up till March to 2020, white nationalism is a, a theme of importance. Mm. However, since then, uh, and especially since the George Floyd Black Lives Matter demonstrations all over the country, including 
uh, places that are small and obscure and overwhelmingly white. Um, white people went out into the streets with black people. Now, I remember uh, a similar time in American history, which is the 1960s and 70s, when there was a strong anti-racist uprising. And at that point, the people in the streets were virtually all black. There, there were a few white people, but there were only a few white people. This was very different. So the next chapter of American whiteness since Trump is actually in From Slavery to Freedom. That is my artist book called From Slavery to Freedom, yeah, in, yeah. which uh, starts with the atrocities and the deaths, uh, the racist deaths of black people. But it also includes um, one page on Dixie and Confederates and Trump, but also several pages on these multicultural, multi-racist crowds in the streets. And it ends on a hopeful note, actually, uh, with two pages of the words from um, the Black National Anthem. I grew up in the 19th, in the 20th century, so I learned it as the Negro National Anthem very proudly. Um, Lift every voice and sing, which ends on a hopeful and really a positive uh, note of pride, uh, almost patriotism, uh, mm -hmm. true to our native land. So that's a long way of saying that American whiteness since Trump for almost four years was veering into white nationalism, but in the last nine months and since the presidential election, which Democrats won by something like five, six million votes, are pointing toward uh, a much less racialized time. No, not less racialized, less white nationalist. So, mm. so well, this so um, I guess before we go on, I ask all of my uh, contributors if you could offer up your definition of whiteness. What what do you understand? Uh, by the term and I guess also therefore connected to that would be my question over whether you feel that the the racial fault lines that really Trump's presidency many people would say just highlighted maybe aggravated um yeah. can Re they revealed in fact would yeah many people felt that it was simply just kind of pulling up the cover off things that were there rather than sort of necessarily creating them can those uh, divisions now be healed under no. um, <laughs> Biden ad administration or do we do we fear a return to some kind of you know sense that everything's okay apart from a few crazies narrative uh, the answer to all of that is no <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah um, but there is no one definition of whiteness just as there's no one definition of blackness um, race is an ideology. It is not a biological thing. And it changes over time. The way it's defined and used, or the ways, plural, it's defined and used, depend on when and where and who's speaking and for what purpose. So it's very much part of a culture 
we could say a national culture, a regional culture. So I'm sitting here in New York State in the United States, and you're in London and Great Britain. Um, my book, The History of White People, came out in a French edition um, early, uh, almost a year ago, early 2019. And when I did my book tours, I always had to stress that France and the United States are two very different countries. And even though we can see some commonalities in the way racial ideology works in the two countries, the histories are separate enough that um, you can't just take one example or uh, what happens in the United States and import it to France or to Britain. Mm. However, the, uh, the histories of race and whiteness and blackness in the United States can be instructive to people outside the United States and other countries. So that was actually one of my questions. So in what ways would you say that European whiteness is different to uh, American whiteness? Obviously, you know, each country has got its very specific history. And we we understand that that is critical in the formation of categories of meaning, including, of course, the, the, the category yeah. of meaning whiteness. Yeah. But yeah. I suppose when we think of America and we think of the ideologues um, who shaped uh, theories of race, um, the people who shape uh, pseudoscience of race. Uh, no, many it's, of science. it's science. It really is science. It was science. The people, um, well, in my book, The History of White People, um, I my editor wanted me to put scare quotes around science. And I said, mm. no, because the people I'm talking about were recognized as science in their time. They applied the tests of science of their time. What we need to remember is that science doesn't take place in some d distant realm. It's part of the culture where it's pursued. And science changes, too. I mean, science is not the same as whim. Uh, of but course. Yeah, science yeah. is not some lofty, um, this will stand forever. It's supposed to stand forever in all situations, and it's better than whim, but it's not the same as uh, graven uh, truth for all time. So racial science uh, was a science of its time. We are not in that time. We are in a different time, and we know, or we should know, that race is an ideology, not a biological fact, and that it changes according to situation and according to time. I've just told you how whiteness uh, plays out differently for me in the United States before 2020. Yeah. And, and But so in terms of the differences between American and European whiteness, what are some of the, yes. the uh, critical, um, you know, if you're going to if you're going to pull out a few major differences um, and if you want to narrow it, because obviously European is, is broad and, you know, I'm sit here yes. in, sat here in the UK as a, as a half French person and, and you know, my French uh -huh. colleagues would say, well, France is very culturally different to the UK. So if oh, you yes. want to, if, if instead of European, <laughs> yeah. you'd like to focus on, you know, the UK, yeah. um, then feel free. But but what are some of the major differences that you would point to in the yeah. conceptualization of yeah. whiteness? The big difference is imperialism and colonialism. 
those are the two. That's the big difference for both France and Britain. Um, next to that is the 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 concept that the metropole is um, a homogeneous space racially. Mm-hmm. The big difference in the metropoles before the Second World War was uh, religion and anti-Semitism. That was the big one, anti-Semitism, uh, especially in continental Europe with, as we see, tragic circum- um, uh, consequences. So the salience of race in the American sense, uh, in the mid-20th century American sense, which is heavily black-white, doesn't work for a long time in uh, France and Britain and Germany, where uh, Jewish, non-Jewish would be the big difference. But now, <clears throat> excuse me, I need to drink a little bit of tea here. Please, go, go ahead, yeah. Uh, <clears throat> now, with formerly colonized peoples, in France, they there there's a real difficulty of dealing with people who are French, that is from Martinique, for instance, in Guadeloupe. Um, those are overseas département. And so those people are French, but they are French yes, people yeah. with brown skin. And so they are often treated as immigrants. Um, uh, people with their roots in North Africa uh, are often treated as immigrants. Um, mm-hmm. And then the story, I, I've just been reading Simone de Beauvoir, um, you know, writing about the post-Second World War era. And, of course, the war in Algeria is is huge and distressing. Mm-hmm. But the questions around people whose roots are in Algeria, say, in France, there's no comparison there's no easy comparison in American history. The closest we can get, I think, is Puerto Rico. Um, so the question of peoples from places, overseas departements or former colonies is different um, for Europe as uh, contrasted with the United States. In the United States, the um, historically... Um, the historically racialized people like me uh, have their roots in the American South, even though we're all over the country, roots in the American South. What's really interesting is that both Europe and the U.S. are converging in ways that aren't always easy to see. That is, in the U.S., we have um, now millions of immigrants or the children of immigrants with roots in continental Africa. And um, those immigrants are very well educated and uh, rise very quickly in visibility in American society as black people. But as immigrants, as recent immigrants, their mentalities can be quite different from those of us who are American de souche, so to speak. So that can be more like the European sense. In Europe, um, Francais de Souche or or, um, white British people with deep roots in Britain 
<clears throat> and here I probably should exempt Irish people because that's another story. Well, yeah, uh, as, uh, as someone who's also half Irish, that, that part <laughs> of the story is of a lot of interest to me because for a long time we know that the Irish were referred to as the blacks of Europe. And of course, there were uh, periods in British history where... A British colony. Uh, yeah, indeed. Treated in a very uh, rough colonial fashion. Uh, in in 19th century parlance, you would be all Celtic mm. uh, from Irish and French. Uh, but these are, are complicated stories that I don't want to drag you into. But I do want to say that in Britain and France now, there is a recognition that there's something that Americans would recognize as white people. So, I mean, I guess what I, I was trying to um, get at with the question is that increasingly some of the conversations around race and whiteness that are being had in an American context are uh, brought over here yes. to, to Europe and and there's yeah. a lot of people who see a lot of continuity there. And so yeah. one of the major continuities, I mean, I know um, you uh, were saying that the definition of whiteness is an evolving one. But if, if I were going to, you know, uh, be be so, um, uh, you know, bold as to put one forward, I'd think of it as sort of um, a, 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 the idea that there is a hierarchy of human value and the modes of knowledge that have been constructed over time to justify and uphold that hierarchy of human value. Um, is that a definition that you recognize? And sure. in that sense, Absolutely. yeah. And it, it, However, and it, it pertains yeah. to more than race. Okay. It pertains to uh, the way that people rank themselves, uh, sometimes by religion, sometimes by region, uh, and often by race. So yes, that is a very useful, but a rather abstract theoretical definition that won't sure. work um, on in the everyday level. And so that's why I say, and I was thinking in the everyday level of yeah. how we live our lives, that will not work. It's too theoretical. Mm. And so when you think of your, let's use you again. Sure. Um, so in a, in 19th century Boston, say, or uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson's uh, Concord, um, in the 19th century, you would be seen as a member of an inferior, but a white race, the Celtic race, right, because right. there were lots of Irish there. But by two generations later, in that, those same places in Concord or Boston, um, when there were Italians, for instance, the um, the salience of Irishness, no, that's not true, because the salience of Irishness in Massachusetts is still very high. Um, I, let's I move, hear that, yeah. Yeah, let's, let's move this uh, to uh, a place like Atlanta. Let's move it to a place in the South. Yeah, and yeah. In the South, and let's take Irish out and put Jewish in. How's that? So um, sure. in the North, uh, Jewishness could be seen very clearly, but in the South, it could not. And so Jewish people in the South circulated pretty much as white people because the salient differences were black-white. Right. But um, if you went to another place, uh, like we go back to Boston, 
with almost no black people, the salient differences were Irish, not Irish, and then a little bit later, Italian, not Italian. So, but on the other hand, when you move in your family or among people who know you, you don't move as a raced person, um, Mm. usually, usually. And uh, the example um, I use is that You know, when people get on their high horse and start talking about how superior their race is, whatever it is, I say, well, just think about your brother-in-law, because everybody has a brother-in-law who's a fart, (laughs) who is not an example of racial superiority. So, you know, you, you use race in different ways, and you get used through race in different ways, in different settings. There's enough commonality in a racist society that people think they know what they're talking about when they use race words. But that's not all there is. Discrimination is a lot of it. And that's Mm. why the terms work. But it's not all there is. You ask about, um, uh, about white, I think you ask about white terminology. Yeah. And... Uh, a month or so, maybe two months now, I wrote a piece in the Washington Post saying that we should capitalize white as well as black. Mm-hmm. Um, this came out of discussions uh, of capitalizing black out of respect, and that was uh, widely embraced. So the New York Times, for instance, capitalizes black. I said, I'm not the only one who says this, but... Uh, So, for instance, the uh, National Association of Black Journalists says you should also capitalize white. And I agree with them, because when we use white as a race word, it is just as much part of an ideology and it has a history as black. Mm -hmm. And it needs to be seen as a salient ideology. So I'm very pleased that the Washington Post does capitalize white. Um, but by and large, that has not spread widely. But I think white should be capitalized to remind us that this is also a constructed identity. So, but are whiteness and blackness comparative categories in that sense? I mean, would you would you say that blackness is also a construct? Because I yes. understand yes. that some some would dispute that and, sure. and would argue that a concept of blackness existed far, uh, you know, long before the creation of the idea of racial hierarchies, which is in many ways a European import to America, which developed its own momentum. Would you that, agree with that? Uh, part of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, You've said a lot of things there. Yeah, I have. Blackness is a construct. It's part of an ideology. The idea of races goes back to the middle of the 18th century. Races as pertaining to people, not mm-hmm. just horses. Uh, and so the ideology of race, the scientific ideology of race, has a history that goes back to the 18th century. Now, I want to make very clear that I'm not saying people couldn't see um, physical difference. People could see that some people have light skin and some people have dark skin. That was very clear. Or some people are tall and some people are short. 
Some people have different colored eyes. Some people's noses are different. Herodotus talked about this. He talked about human difference, and he explained it in the way that it had been explained largely um, before uh, scientific race in the 18th century by environment. So the Scythians, for instance, are sort of loggy uh, because they live in a damp environment. Um, the Greeks are superior, being a Greek himself, the Greeks are superior because they live in a bracing climate with mountains and sea. So the usual way of explain and the way that we explain now um, human differences has to do with the environment. So skin color is related to um, ultraviolet rays and the melanin uh, that needs to be um, uh, activated to protect you against uh, skin cancer. So lightness and darkness of skin is related to your environment and ultraviolet radiation. Uh, but the but idea, think, yeah, 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 go ahead. But what, so but the, the, the issue, of course, is that at a certain point in history, um, and you refer there to a, a, a moment or several moments, presumably around the 18th century, in which um, sort of aleatory hu differences in, in human physiognomy become translated into essentialist um, descriptions. Yeah. yeah, essentialist categories yeah. of human value. Um, yeah. how, how does that happen and why does it happen? Um, part of the reason it happens is that science is taking the place of religion. Religion is a very strong way of categorizing people, and people have been killing others uh, on account of religion for as long back as I know, and that still happens. So religion is a very strong means of categorizing people. Science says we're going to count up stuff. The operative name is Linnaeus, Carolus Linnaeus, uh, in the middle of the 18th century. And taxonomy is the field of science that categorizes things, people, everything. So the most respected way of categorizing people in the late 18th century, Blumenbach is the name there, is by measuring skulls. And skull measurement was the leading means of categorizing people well into the 20th century. So you would categorize people by their skull measurements and the relationship between the length and the breadth. And then uh, the mania for measuring bodies kind of, I mean, it just went on and on and on. So anthropologists uh, in the 19th and early 20th centuries were measuring the breadth of the space between your eyes and everything like that. What made a big difference was not that their measurements yielded anything useful um, besides more tables. It was the Nazis. And the Nazis took this to murderous ends. And American, American scientists and scholars who had embraced the idea of races and human difference and hierarchized um, human difference were absolutely shocked to see what the Nazis did with their ideas. And so it's Nazism, uh, not science, that turned Americans and presumably others in the Western world 
away from the mania of taxonomy of human races. But so my understanding was that before the 20th century, we have a period of, you know, particularly when we talk about European immigration to the United States, where you had indentured servants, um, you know, coming together, rebelling, you know, Bacon's Rebellion uh, being the most famous incident in the 17th century of of that variety, uh, in which, you know, some historians would locate that as a very specific moment in the creation (laughs) of whiteness is is that a pivotal moment and 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 if so why it is a pivotal moment um because it uh, relates the need to categorize to legalize um differences within the population so you mentioned indentured servitude um which existed in what became the united states until Around the time of the revolution, the revolu- the American Revolution, we date it to 1776, but it went into the 1780s, um, did bring uh, a breath of freedom. That breath of freedom mostly benefited uh, indentured white people. Um, the usefulness of people, uh, the usefulness of the category of people who could be permanently subjugated, that is enslaved, was very clear by the time of the American Revolution. And people, particularly in the South, um, saw that their economic basis was built on on slavery, on an enslaved workforce. So by the American Revolution, um, enslavement is an important part of American politics. And so when you mention Bacon's Rebellion, you're mentioning political changes and economic changes. So racism in the United States takes its form, or I should say its forms, because it changed over time, from the political economy. where can you could you give our audience a sense of the origin of the term and where it emerges from and now it's very much associated with white racial identity has that presumably hasn't always been the case this is true and i can tell you the <clears throat> the idea of white people as caucasians comes from jan friedrich blumenbach who was a professor at Göttingen in germany and in the late 18th century, he wrote a treatise that went through uh, several editions and became very influential. And his idea was that there were five um, um, human varieties, and these were associated with places. He did not rank them hierarchically. He ranked them horizontally by beauty. And in the middle was his most beautiful skull, because he measured skulls, which was from a woman who had been a sex slave in Moscow, who was originally from Georgia in the Caucasus. Georgia in the Caucasus. So he used the word Caucasian for the most beautiful people in the world, beautiful as uh, defined by their skulls. And that group went from India and the Urals uh, into Northwestern Europe and included North Africa. 
So that was Caucasians. And the skull in question was that of a sex slave. The Caucasus was an area, still a very poor area, and ethnically very complicated. I was there last year, actually. I was in Georgia. And uh, it's an area with uh, several different languages and several different ethnic groups. The lingua franca, because of imperialism, is Russian. But it is an area in which people were very vulnerable, were rounded up, and uh, sent into Russia and sent into the Eastern Mediterranean uh, as slaves. But as slave women, slave girls, we know the um, attractiveness of young, vulnerable women. And that is the root of Caucasian for white people. Now, when I wrote um, the history of white people in the early 21st century, the word Caucasian was much more current than it is now. I said earlier that the, the usage changes. And between, say, the year 2000 and 2020, the use of Caucasian has kind of, um, I wouldn't say fallen by the wayside, but it's more restricted than it was. And the use of the word white is much more widespread. I think this is a good thing because uh, people understand white much more than they understand Caucasian. So there's been change over time in the use of Caucasian, which is not as widespread as it was 20 years ago. Um, but the roots of that is slavery through the Black Sea, the mm-hmm. Black Sea slave trade. And, and what should we take from this evolving meaning of whiteness throughout history? Presumably that whiteness takes on uh, a political function or um, a social function. And, and what is that evolving function? Um, you pointed out earlier in your your very theoretical definition that, that hierarchies are about power, and that is true. I think the first thing is to realize that usage of white and whiteness changes over time and by place and by motive. That's really important to understand. Well, matter in the United States. Just look at Trump's cult-like following. Uh, of people who are not looking at what his economic policies are or what he can do for them in their jobs or with their mortgages or with their food stamps. No, it is a psychological uh, category that works to make people feel good or to feel threatened, actually. But what I want to underline is that race has a psychological as well as an economic and, no, I don't want to speak in uh, singulars here, as well as economic and social uh, and political functions. Okay, and so um, if he, is there um, a kind of story of how whiteness has evolved, say, from the turn of the 20th century to today? How would you describe the shift in the meaning between the turn of the 20th century to today, or the meanings with a plural. Okay, so I wrote a book, (laughs) Uh, 
that has many pages on this, but um, one easy answer is that whiteness is not what it used to be in, in the early 20th century. In the United States, I don't think this is the case in Britain. I know it's not the case in France. There were laws um, protecting whiteness. There were laws and there were mores and habits, uh, segregation du jour, uh, segregation uh, also just by habit, uh, but segregation. So whiteness was fenced around with a lot of protections. Some, a lot of those protections were legal, but a lot of them were assumptions about, say, who should be the president, who should be your, um, your elected representative, who was beautiful, who was rich, who could get loans from the local bank. All of this was whiteness protected in the 20th century. A lot of that has fallen down. The laws have fallen down in the United States. And so whiteness is not the monolith uh, legally that it never was a monolith because those kinds of definitions were state by state. But the protections of whiteness uh, have fallen. And in your book, you, you talk about... Um... The, pro the project of measuring intelligence, uh, probably doing more than eugenics to st stigmatize and hold back uh, non-white groups. How did intelligence measurement become associated with whiteness? Um, it's associated with whiteness, but it's also associated with um, immigrants and with um, measurements of intelligence. The short answer is the First World War. Um, the idea of measuring intelligence, uh, that is to say intelligence tests, comes out of France, where it was used um, early in the 20th century as a way of, of helping students who might be um, handicapped um, uh, through intelligence. So er, first of all, uh, intelligence testing was supposed to help people who had supposedly less intelligence. But during the First World War, the scientists got together with um, the army and tested millions of people. And so having that data, and that's a crucial word, having that data meant that people could do all sorts of things with it. So it was no longer just um, anecdotal or local. And the first big use in terms of national politics was to limit immigration from Southern and Eastern Europe. That is the immigration uh, of people from Europe, that is people we consider white. Um, another was in applications for colleges and another was in eugenics. So um, eugenics and colleges and immigrants, all of those were uh, hitting mostly people we would consider white. However, those kinds of judgments also weighed against people who were not white, but not in such gross terms. Mm -hmm. Um, and to bring it into kind of current um, conversations around whiteness as part of 
sort of anti-racism movements. Um, do you find whiteness to be a useful conceptual category in these conversations? Yes, it's useful um, because in the United States, masses of white people did not consider themselves as raced. They were just individuals in their own eyes. And therefore, they had no part to play, they thought, in the perpetuation of discriminatory um, discriminatory practices. By letting or asking or encouraging white people to see themselves as white, that is an anti-racist act. And um, some people have um, questioned whether encouraging people racialized as white to think of themselves as white uh, may not reinforce racial divisions. What is your view on that? Um, I disagree. Yeah. So, so you think that? Um, uh, so, and and I guess some of the writers who've responded to this have pointed out, you know, can there be a pride in white European identity, which would be different to white pride, which presumably isn't something anyone would wish to encourage? Um, no, because of the history. Um, I want to say two things here and help me remember <laughs> that I want to say two things. Sure. One is that blackness and whiteness are not symmetrical in the United States. Um, they have different histories. They're related history. You can't have one without the other. But as you can capitalize black out of respect, you capitalize white out of visibility to make it seen. So those are two different ways of using racial designation. The second thing that we have in the United States of an unhappy but a very strong history of white nationalism, um, of discrimination, of segregation, of slavery. So out of that history, there, there, that history inflects the meanings of whiteness. So you can't you can't have one without the other. If we didn't have that history of white nationalism, of the Ku Klux Klan and so forth, then perhaps white Americans could say, well, um, you know, being white is just something, you, you know, you just are, and it's not related to the Klan. But, but the history relates um, white identity to the Klan. Mm. Um. Uh, you asked me to remind you the second thing, but presumably that was, that was the second was, thing. Yes, yeah, just yeah. checking. Um, uh, here in the UK, we've had a lot of conversations around critical race theory, and it's become yeah. somewhat of a, a bet noir in political circles. Our, our own equalities minister, um, you know, has argued that teachers shouldn't teach white pupils about white privilege or inherited racial guilt. And, and in fact, that that would be considered as breaking the law. And I know Trump has also taken a, a dim view yes. um, of critical race theory. Can yeah. you, um, what, what are your, firstly, how would you define critical race theory and how important is this paradigm to unpicking some of the uh, knots that we find ourselves today, in today? I think it's very important. Um, I think critical race theory, made a big step and 
in the United States, we are indebted to critical race theorists uh, who are British or are and were British. Um, but that is something that for me takes place on the collegiate level. Uh, I am not a teacher, a K-12 teacher, so I don't know how how best to import really scholarly ideas into pedagogy. That I do not know. But I think people who function on the level of scholarship and who function on the level of policy need to know and understand critical race theory, because otherwise you sort of blunder around, say, thinking, oh, since it's okay to be proud to be black, it's okay to be proud to be white. You know, that's just a statement that can come out of ignorance. So, yes, critical race theory is very important for people who think seriously about race and the history of race. I don't know how it should work in the K through 12 level. I don't know. Mm. Um, and I suppose the, the question of a lot of um, within a lot of anti-racism circles is, you know, what is the end goal? I mean, is there a post-racial world that we can imagine? Is that possible or even desirable? Again, I don't know. People have asked me that often. And my first answer is no. Certainly in the United States, there is no post-race because our country and our our nationality is practically based on race. Um, you know, race is in the U.S. DNA. But if there is something after that, I say, it's probably worse. Um, mm. We know what religion can do. And that is not a pretty sight. Right. And, um, and so I guess my, my final question, if that's um, okay, would be um, for those um, who will hopefully now and go, go and read this book after hearing the podcast, what is it that you hope that people racialized as white would take away from a book like The History of White People? The first thing is that things change, that there is no one answer, there is no one moment, there is no simple way of explaining, and that race is not biological. That's what I, the first things I would like people to take away. The second thing is that anti-racist work is work, but it is not the same thing as scholarship, that you can learn about the history of constructions of American whiteness. But the next step is to do something. Mm -hmm. um, and the, the do something presumably is to unpick the structures that contributed to the creation of structures of power rooted no, 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 in... No, no. It depends on where you are. So okay. for instance, um, I don't know what part of London you're in, but your anti-racist work might well take place on the strictly local level. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm a big believer in change from below. Um, and I think anti-racist work takes place most productively on the local level. And so what the local needs are change from locale to locale. I can't tell you, I mean, even if I were in a different part of London, I couldn't tell you what the needs are in your part of London. Uh, so I can't tell you what 
UK needs are. I can read about it in the paper, but I can't know in a way to say recommend action. But knowing is one thing and acting, we call it theory and praxis. Sure. Okay, well, um, thank you so much for your contribution today. I know you have an upcoming uh, book, which is uh, soon to be released. Is that correct? That's right. Um, It's called Southern History Across the Color Line. It'll come out early next year from the University of North Carolina Press. And uh, it's essays about the history of the South. That was my field as a scholarly historian. And looking across the color line at ways in which um, people did not exist in, say, hermetically black or hermetically white spaces. Okay. Um, and and so in that sense, is it are there lessons that you're hoping people can take from that that are applicable to the current dynamics in the U.S.? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> it's okay. a work of history, but I hope that understanding um, the functions of a key phrase uh, his, historically in the South, which is um, social equality, uh, and you have to. I would need more time than we have to explain that, but it's about the uh, workings of race and racism um, in in people's interactions. It's not just about the laws. It's about how people interact. And remember I mentioned how race works on a gut level. It's Mm -hmm. the gut level stuff, and there's a lot of sex. Okay. Well, um, well, thank you so much uh, for your contribution, Professor Painter. I appreciate you uh, taking the time. Um, Thank you for all who are listening uh, to this episode of We Need to Talk About Whiteness. Please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud and join us next time for more conversations on whiteness.